Hey folks, welcome to episode 135 of the Becoming Human podcast. This episode features Eric Tompczak. He's a custom bike frame builder working out of his shop in Durango, Colorado. Eric builds slick whips that is like riding a rainbow unicorn on thin ridges in cotton candy clouds high above the tree line of the bitter broccoli florets where sick jumps and rolling single track await the most excite rider. Eric is a craftsman who shapes and reinforces metal tubes in a unique geometry to provide the best experience for the bicyclist in their environment. It is amazing to me that some people dedicate most of their energy to creating a functional work of art, something that you can engage with, where the shape of it has an aesthetic quality, but also changes what it feels like to ride. The intricate details and challenges you face when building a bike frame is astounding. Eric has been experimenting with some full suspension designs lately. You can check out his bike builds or request a custom build on MythCycles.com or you can find him on Instagram at MythCycles. This episode was brought to you by The Daily Stoic. Um, it's a short podcast um, or email every day that's like takes no more than five minutes and it has like very succinct and potent information on how to deal with life and it's awesome because they use a lot of ex um, experiences to be able to teach different coping strategies and um, philosophies and and just how to get by and how to pursue a quality life. Um, it's perhaps been the most powerful tool in my life, and it was the easiest thing to implement because it was only a few minutes a day, you know, because um, we all have, you know, it might be hard to take on, like, another podcast or to, like, you know, reading these long articles, but they provide all the necessary information within, like, a five-minute read or five-minute listen, um, you can check them out at dailystoic.com. You can, um, download them on your favorite podcast app and you can also find them on Instagram at daily stoic be sure to, um, let them know that, uh, becoming human podcast sent you over so you could support the show. And if you'd like to support the show in other ways, you can go to becoming human podcast.com, uh, <coughs> drop a comment. Share it with a friend. You can rate and review us on uh, your favorite podcast app. And before we get to the episode, I'm going to play you in with a song um, from the Bandits of the Acoustic Revolution. Enjoy. In the house in the middle of the woods He said one song, don't you laugh out loud with their lips 
listening. Ooh, you gotta be strong. Ooh, you gotta keep holding on. It's now just a matter of. bicycle frame builder and uh, I basically fabricate and sell uh, custom bikes for people. That is so cool. How did you get into that profession? Um, so it was kind of a bit of a circuitous road, but uh, I I went to school for welding and fabricating um, at a local kind of like um, community college, basically. And at that time, which was years ago, my, my goal was to build bikes, um, eventually, but I kind of, I went to school for that and I was like, well, I better get a job welding. And so 
I ended up kind of just in the industry and um, welding and fabricating for a few years. And I kind of forgot about building bikes. <laughs> and then uh, did you just I, get like entrenched into the to like the welding industry or just life takeover? I mean, it was kind of a little bit of both. It's not like there's a ton of welding industry here in Durango for me to necessarily have gotten that far into that. But it was more kind of like I just wanted to learn the trade. I wanted to learn metal and learn um, that kind of stuff, you know. And so I, it was once I realized, the, I guess, the can of worms I'd opened, I sort of wanted to get a better a what more well-rounded you know knowledge of it before i'm moving forward mm -hmm. before um, specialized yeah yeah exactly um or i mean i don't know my attention span wasn't that great at the time so i could have <laughs> just forgotten <laughs> um, well, sounds like mine now <laughs> yeah <laughs> um yeah. And then so I ended up working for a guy uh, here in Durango named Ron Andrews, um, and I worked for him for years, actually. And uh, he makes water bottle holders for bikes, water bottle cages and uh, out of stainless steel and titanium. So he's an old bike industry guy. And uh, he worked for a couple different companies doing tool making. So he kind of was, a uh, um, when he was younger, he basically went around to a couple different companies and he just focused on like streamlining their production mm -hmm. was kind of his job. Um, he worked for Yeti cycles here and when it was in Durango, um, he worked for fat city cycles, uh, wow. back East, uh, Ibis cycles on the West coast. So, um, so he was like entrenched in that industry. Very much so. Yeah. And it was kind of in the nineties when, and like the late eighties when there was still a lot of like bike manufacturing happening in the States. And so mm -hmm. it was kind of kind of, I'm not sure if you could call it the golden age of, uh, bike factories in the United mm -hmm. States, but it, it might've been, um, mm -hmm. And so, yeah, anyway, so that was kind of his thing. And uh, so I learned a lot about the bike industry from him and kind of just working for him. Um, and I developed a lot as a metal worker working for him as well. He's a he's a brilliant metal worker. And um, what were some of the things that, that stood out to you um, that wouldn't that you'd make him consider him a brilliant metal worker? he's really good at making stuff, I guess would be the, yeah. <laughs> to oversimplify it. Uh -huh. Um, he's so one of the things that I think is, is really cool about like his business and what he does is that he makes these little items, you know, like what, like a stainless steel bottle cage sells for like 20 bucks. Mm -hmm. Um, so he has to make enough of them, you know, to make a living. And so streamlining the process is like his whole thing. And there's, there's a lot of steps uh -huh. to each thing. And he's just good at finding the efficiencies and the ways to do things. And everything is done by hand. Nothing is done with CNC in his Whoa. shop. Um, and so I would say that really his, I mean, he's just a, he, he's just one of these guys who, you know, like he, he started machining in high school when they, when his high school had a machining, a metal machining program. And he's just, lived in metalwork his his whole life and so um 
I mean, experience, I think is definitely a big part of it plays, plays a huge role. Um, but yeah, no, he's a, he's a smart guy. So, um, but yeah, so I eventually built my first bike frame in his shop, um, and kind of have started slowly piecing together my own shop kind of starting around the same time and uh eventually just decided to make the jump to doing it uh professionally um what was the experience like to make the jump professionally Mm. it's i mean i would argue i'm maybe still going through that (laughs) (laughs) i'm not sure if i'll i fall you know i might be saying that 10 years from now Mm -hmm. um so I've been, I, I built my first frame about four and a half or five years ago now. And, uh, I started the company three years ago and I mean, the biggest thing I, you know, I think the biggest thing for me was like, how do you run a business? I knew how to make a bike frame. Like that wasn't really ever a huge challenge for me, Mm -hmm. um, with a, with an actual fabricating background, like the actual making of the bikes, there was tons to learn obviously, but it wasn't like I was starting from the ground up. Whereas like running the business was totally different. I mean, you know, getting into bookkeeping and paying taxes and insurance. And I mean, just, you know, the first time somebody said, okay, I'm going to buy a bike from you. I want to buy a bike from you. Luckily it was a friend of mine Yeah. and she was like, you know, she's like, okay, cool. I want to buy this bike from you. And I was like, I don't even know what to do. I was just kind of like, I was like, okay, I guess. Uh, so I have to build the bike. I have to, you know, get parts for the bike. I have to send her an invoice, I guess, you know, like all of that, the business stuff was new. So that was definitely kind of my biggest challenge, I guess, getting into it. And was the business side something that was, um, as you got into it, was it very interesting to you or was it just something that you had to compromise on so that you can, you know, build bikes professionally? You know, I mean, I think it started out as feeling like a compromise because, of course, anybody who wants to do something like this, I mean, almost everybody at least definitely romanticizes like, oh, yeah, I'm just going to be in my shop creating all day. Um, But as this sort of reality of running the business set in over the course of like that first year, um, I think I kind of just changed my perspective to try and find what about running the business could be interesting for me because, you know, I didn't want to hate that part of it. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I mean, like, it's a huge part of it. I'm not sure that people necessarily understand. Um, I used to say that I like, I mean, before this year, I used to say I spend 50% of my time, you know, in front of a computer or running the business or whatever. And I'd say that that, that amount of time has gone to 60 or 65% just with the wow. logistical issues of COVID and 2020 and just the bike industry in general right now. Yeah. So, so it's kind of one of those things where like, I don't know if I hated, if I hated it, I don't want to hate like 60% of, of my job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I do my best to find what I, you know, as much of it as I can interesting so that I don't go crazy. Yeah. <laughs> And how has business as you've gotten into like the business side of things, has it changed um, 
your perspective or the way that you approach bike building? Yeah, yeah, to a degree. I mean, um, I think about the industry a lot and I try to think about where the industry is headed. Um, and, you know, it's kind of just one of those things where if you're, if you're building bikes that are available to people right now, you're kind of already behind, you know? Um, and so it's like trying to figure out just, just being maybe not even a, a full step ahead, but even just a half a step ahead. Um, and just trying to watch where the industry is going so that you don't get left behind. So, I mean, that's definitely kind of interesting because, you know, if I was just doing it as a hobby, I would basically just build nothing but exactly what I wanted to ride. And that would be it. Um, but you know, there's downsides to that too, because it's like the industry forces me to try new things because I'm into building primarily mountain bikes. And so, um, I mean, mountain bikes are changing all the time and they're, they're changing fast. And so it forces me to try new things. And some of them are things that I say, Hey, this is awesome. I want to integrate this into future bikes. And some of them, I'm just like, well, this is dumb. I'm going to stick with what I was doing because that works better. And I'm going to explain to my customers why I'm making that decision, you know? Mm -hmm. Makes sense. So, do you mountain bike? Um, I have gotten into mountain. This is my first year getting into mountain biking. I used to BMX race when I was a kid. Um, oh, cool. My dad had his own like bike team and bike shop and we travel all over the West. Um, oh, cool. Yeah, it was so much fun, man. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> my my son's gotten into uh, mountain biking, though, and then I got a mountain bike so I could follow with him. And I live over here in the Pacific Northwest and like, you know, yeah. Bellingham, Seattle area. And uh, gosh, I just found out that I, I just I love it so much. I love trail running because running downhill was amazing. And my mountain yeah. biking friends was like, oh, you're going to love mountain biking. And they were certainly right. <laughs> yeah yeah it's sometimes it's nice to diversify a little bit and whatever's getting you outside yeah exactly and that, that's kind of what what i really love about about mountain biking and other kinds of activities there is a, an approach to to fitness and health and wellness that's like this is what i should be doing i got to show up to the gym you know every so many days a week so that i can be healthy um and then there's another way of going about things where like you know, you find things that you love and that you, you want, you look forward to the weekend for, and that changes, at least for me, it changed my whole relationship to fitness and being healthy. Like, you know, I, I want to be healthy yeah. so I can have more fun. Right. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, I would argue too, and this is, could be a whole other conversation, but I would mm -hmm. argue that you get in shape faster if you're enjoying it. I mean, I, I don't know. I've, I've never personally done the, like, go to the gym this many times a week thing. And so mm -hmm. I can't speak for that, but you know, I'm lucky enough to live in an area that's really beautiful. So it's really easy to, to just spend time outside and, and yeah, I mean, you get healthy kind of naturally that way. Mm -hmm. I think it, and it reminds me a lot of, uh, of children. Cause I, I see us all as like more complicated children, right? With a lot more subtle yeah. cues um, yeah. and recess is their favorite thing. And then I would like yeah. see adults and they're like, oh, I'm too old. I can't play like that. And then I get into these rock climbing communities and running and I'm like, whoa, there's literally like 80 year old men and women out there doing all these things and either showing me up or just sitting there or just enjoying it and, you know, experiencing it on 
at their own like skill level or relative, you know, effort level. Yeah, and exactly. It was like, wow, like I the thing that I love so much is to be able to play and whether it's playing with my son and there's friends or, you know, my friends and even just, you know, myself out in the mountains, stuff like that. Like that's probably one of the most fulfilling moments of my life and the way that I bond with people like the most intensely, you know. Um, yeah, definitely. It's cool because no one's ever really showed me the way um, growing up because my like family role models and stuff. It was just like, you know, kind of work. Um, come home, go to the movies and, you know, holidays, but nothing out outside right. of that, like, you no know, like overarching right. passions. But th that's why it's interesting to me that, you know, you, you sound like you were really committed in, in wanting to um, build bike frames and like at a very early age um, and that you, you put yourself into this kind of like unconventional lifestyle to where, you know, you're like following this thing that you love building, doing, doing metal work and, and you have to like connect the dots to make it financially viable to put yourself in the market. There's no like yeah. clear path, like of how to do this, you know? Definitely. Yeah, no, it was, it's, it's kind of been a, a long overall process for sure. And I think, I think something that's important to, to distinguish at least for me is that like when I decided to do this professionally, I knew that it had to pay the bills. Like it wasn't, it wasn't something that I was, you know, um, it's, it's so interesting being in, um, being in a field where there are a lot of other people doing it purely because they love it. And, um, and I, and it's, I mean, again, this is maybe a conversation that could go down a whole other road. <laughs> um, but you know, for at least for me, the money had to be there because I don't have like an alternate, an alternate source of income, um, that was like paying my mortgage. Mm -hmm. And so there was the, I love it part of it, but then there was also the part of it that was like, I need to approach this as a professional and as a business, because if it's not paying me, there's, I, I can't afford to do it, you know? Mm -hmm. So, yeah. And that's but. where I think is something that's very interesting to me, which is, um, uh, professionalizing your interests, right? Yeah, and exactly. It, it's so cool because you know you you're an example of where you start off with this interest, and then you you have to ask yourself, you know, these tough questions of like, you know, how can I make this pay the bills? And for yep. for me, in like a personal way, that's um, very compelling, um, and I really look up to you in that way because a lot of these things that I'd find, you know, very enjoyable, like the, the art that I make, right. Or the, the mm -hmm. sports that I play in, or, and even the things that I write, there isn't like a clear path and very like, um, or role models that are within reach, you know, for a lot of people where it's yeah. like, you take this thing that you love, these interests that you do, and there's someone who found a way to like professionalize them, you know? Um, and it's hard because sometimes there's an industry for it and sometimes there's not like, one example right. is like hip hop, right? Like, how do you yeah. go from like writing, you know, writing, um, writing your lyrics and, and making your music to going up on a stage? Like, it's not right. it's not really clear at all. And, you know, even no, business, totally. like you said, it's the same thing. Like, you got to figure a lot of it out. Yeah, definitely. And it's 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 so interesting because I feel like, you know, I get taught uh, people talk to me who are doing, you know, kind of just doing a traditional job, an engineering job or a, uh, you know, whatever it is in finance or, 
And I, I think that it's so easy for folks to look at what I'm doing. Um, and I guess just romanticize it and, Mm -hmm. and think like, Oh, well, you know, he's doing what he loves and he's making some money. So everything's totally fine. And it's like, but like, just, just the phrase you use right at the beginning there, where you're talking about like turning something you love into your business. That's a big, I mean, like, that's a huge question one should ask themselves before, before doing this, because I think that there's definitely some personality types, you know, that do better with it than others. Mm -hmm. And, and I was actually, I was, I was talking about this with, uh, I guess our mutual friend, uh, Joe. Yeah. And cause we were talking about, um, you know, he's a, he's a professional runner and it's kind of, there's, there is a similarity there Mm -hmm. in terms of like, yes, it's something we love, but it does. It's also, now a job and how do you, how do you balance those things? And for me, something that I really kind of come back to when I'm talking about this is that people use this one phrase that, that I feel like it's, it's not my favorite. Cause I feel like it can be misleading. And it's like, if you do what you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And I, and I hear that a lot. And I think the, the the only problem I have with it is that it misleads people into thinking that just because I'm doing something I love, that it's not difficult, that I don't have to go to work in the morning, so to speak, that I don't have to like do the things that aren't enjoyable about it. And it's like, I would still rather do this than anything else, but it requires a lot of work and there's parts of it that I don't want to do, but that I do so that I get to do the parts that I do want to do, you know? And so I think it's a really, I, I've found it to be really valuable to view it as a job, but you can still enjoy your job. It's just Mm -hmm. that I, I worry that people see, see what I'm doing and they're like, Oh, it it would be like not working. Mm -hmm. And I don't, I'm not sure that that's the case. (laughs) Um, and I just, I would hate, I, th- I think that the reason people don't succeed in doing something that they love sometimes mm-hmm. is because there's this precedent set out of like, well, if you're doing what you love, everything should be easy and it shouldn't be difficult. And then when people don't experience that on a daily basis, they get discouraged and they're like, well, I'm either doing it wrong or like it doesn't work for me or something like that. And it's like, no, like you, there's just, there's always going to be that balance of like getting, getting the the crappy stuff out of the way and, you know, focusing on the part that really makes you come alive. Mm. So I don't know. That's kind of my, I guess my kind of rant on, on uh, <laughs> doing what I love, but it's, yeah. uh, it's, I don't, I hope I don't, um, sound negative at all. No, it is still something I absolutely love and hope that everybody finds, you know, for themselves. And it's kind of, um, something that might be a little different because it's a sport and not a profession, but I experience this a lot in trail running. Um, Mm -hmm. really a lot of things that I do because I, I, I haven't found myself to be a committed, like, person to a particular sport, whether it's trail running, rock climbing, or like jujitsu. I love all of them. Mm -hmm. Right. And I practice them, but, um, there are moments in trail running where 
pretty often where I question why I'm doing it because for a long stretch yeah. of time, it's just, it's really miserable and it sucks. Like, <laughs> yeah, it, it, it feels genuinely like, like work, but right. when I hit those highs though, when I'm in that place that, that I look forward to, right. The, mm-hmm. the focus of my romanticization when I'm at home, basically, mm-hmm. um, that makes all of it worth it. And I feel like the more that I practice in the specific thing that I get better at being able to cope with the lows and the, the monotony yeah. so that I'm ready to um, to experience the highs. Right. So I'm ready to right. be present and to accept like the part that I actually do enjoy. I have never um, I've, I've never actually had a profession that I've like that I've planned and tried to get into before. I've only had sports that are like that, but it sounds like I could right. draw some parallels there. Yeah, totally. Well, and I mean, I feel like that's kind of the the truth with anything we do, you know, for enjoyment. Um, I, I was a climber for a really long time, um, for most of my childhood, actually, um, uh, before oh, cool. like my mid twenties. And I mean, yeah, it's, you know, like you've got to put the work in to be climbing at the level you want to be climbing at and putting that work in isn't always, you know, it's, it's not always the high point, but I think it's kind of like, you know, I guess my thing is that it's so easy. I guess the grass is greener thing. You know, you have Mm -hmm. that, you have that high point of an experience. Like maybe you go on a good bike ride and you're like, man, I just, I wish this was my job, but Mm -hmm. you're, but you're, but if you're only focusing on that high point and nothing else, I mean, just like anything in life, it's not going to be, you've got to have the lows and you've got to have the challenges for those highs to be as good as they are. Mm-hmm. So I don't yeah, know. That, that's like a, uh, an experiment that I had one of my kids that I teach in jujitsu talk about, which is, um, she's like my teacher, the teacher had her put her hand on a cold glass of water and then, mm-hmm. um, you hold it on there and then you go and touch a warm glass of water and you're supposed to observe, you know, how it feels. And that warm glass of water obviously feels a lot um, warmer, if not hot, right? Right. Because your, hand, your hand's cold. Relative to the temperature of your of your hand now, it's, yeah. it's hot. It feels hot. And then after some time has passed or the other, or she takes the other hand and she puts it on a hot cup of water and holds it on there and then puts it on a the warm cup of water. And she notices, you know, it's really cold now relative yeah. to the temperature on her hand. And that's kind of how I yeah. feel like the highs and lows can be. You know, where Definitely. You, you expose yourself to these challenges and it takes you, it kicks your relative baseline down a lot. And so these highs can be exponentially higher. It's probably a lot like climbing right. in Colorado compared to Washington. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> maybe. I'm not Starting sure. from sea level and climbing to 14,000 feet, it'd be a little totally. different than you know, 5,000 feet to um, then. Not that I'm trying to exactly. diss Colorado. No, 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 I really, no, really want to go there. But. Yeah, no, it's, it's a, it's a huge thing. No, I was actually, uh, I was training, I was trying to train for a mountaineering trip to Peru and I was like looking around and I could not find an area around here that I could get more than 4,000 vertical feet mm-hmm. in one go. And I was yeah. like, man, this is crazy. Like we've got the altitude for that part of the training, but it was like, yeah, I just had to kind of, um, do a lot of up and down to get the vertical that I was going. Yeah. <laughs> so. 
it's funny. How, yeah, but I, I think the relativity thing is is definitely very. I think that's huge, you know. And and and, and that's just kind of my personal view. But it's so many things are relative, you know. Like we enjoy things because we worked really hard for them, or we, you know, um, or something is a lot harder because we're used to it being easy or things like that. So. Mm-hmm. I think it's fun, though, when you have these like voluntary experiences where you go out into your, you know, whatever the fray is, right, where you're wanting to put yourself in these challenging situations. And it's obviously compelling because like I I watch my I watch my son um, go through it with his friends and and other little kids. And you see a lot of um, a lot of experiential learning going on and they really like unfold themselves and discover a lot in that environment. Um, and yeah. I don't know, for me, it's like the meat and potatoes of life. And yeah. I really think it's cool meeting people who find different ways to engage themselves in that way. Cause I like talk to my mom for instance, and she's been like relatively sedentary life, you know, and she's in her sixties and there's just yeah. some things that she's just now experiencing. And it's very interesting talking to her about like what kind of epiphanies and like personal revelation she has about herself. Um, right through those activities yeah totally it's yeah we're all we're all like performing science experience experiments in one way or another yeah were you sure that you were gonna like um that you love bike building that much that you wanted to professionalize it like were there moments in your life where you had to like um where you had to check the temperature of the water to make sure that this is the direction that you wanted to go you know, maybe, um, I think maybe that could have been a little bit of, you know, the delay and in between actually learning how to weld and then, you know, developing my skills as a fabricator. Um, I'm not sure it was really that conscious of a decision to, to be honest. It was, uh, I mean, the truth is, is what happened was there's only so many places in Durango you can work as a metal worker, as a welder. Mm -hmm. Um, and I had kind of exhausted several of those places and I don't personally, um, not to get too far into this subject, but (laughs) I don't really identify with some of the politics and worldviews of other metal workers and welders. Um, and I tend to be a little, a little less conservative, so to speak. And, uh, and there were a lot of places that I had, had worked and it was fine, but I didn't want to continue working there. Uh, and then there were other places I knew that I, it would be very difficult to work, um, just because of how different I felt like I was than the folks working there. Mm -hmm. Um, and so at a certain point I was like, okay, well, you know, I'm probably going to do best out on my own. So what do I want to do with this skill set? And bikes were just what I knew. And so, um, it seemed like, I don't know. It's kind of, it started as a bit of an experiment to see if I could make it work. And it's still kind of an experiment to see if I can make it work. <laughs> Is there any part of you that was, um, cause I, I imagine that there's some at least perceived risk going into to building your own bike frames. Was there any part of you that was hesitant to like, to make the leap, um, financially speaking? You know, 
as far as when you say risk, are you talking about like financial risk? Yeah, I'm talking about yeah, yeah. Like perceived financial risk, not going to make it, can't pay your bills kind of thing. Yeah, um, I kind of still worry about that. Um, it's definitely I think it's kind of like the nature of running your own business, um, at least just based on like other business owners that I talk to just because, you know, I mean, I just check my inbox every morning and sometimes there's emails with people interested in a bike. Sometimes there's not. And you kind of just never know what's going to happen. I mean, this year was a super bizarre year for for thinking about that, because, you know, we started off the year thinking that the you know, and I know that um, this year has been really hard financially for a lot of people. Mm -hmm. um, and I. I thought I was going to be one of them, but, you know, because of the way COVID has kind of evolved the way it has, so many people are trying to get on bikes and trying to get outside, which is a cool, a cool thing. But the whole industry is like totally behind. The whole industry cannot keep up with the bike orders um, that are coming in. And so consequently, as part of that, I'm kind of, I'm kind of riding part of that wave, um, and I would never have guessed that this business would be, you know, because essentially I sell a luxury good, you know, mm -hmm. and I would never have guessed that I would get busier in what's perceived as challenging economic times. Yeah. And so that was a total surprise for me. I thought that was going to be the whole weak point of my business was that I would get slow during challenging financial times. Mm -hmm. And then this year is just basically making me realize that I have no idea what's going to happen and I just have to ride it out. <laughs> Take it as it comes. I guess. Yeah, totally. Wow. Um, so do you, uh, since you, since you sell a, a bike and I imagine it might take, you know, a, an amount of time to create, right? You can't mm -hmm. like, you're not just putting out bikes at a high volume rate. Do you have to do like, is your if is your budgeting and accounting like a very uh like delicate situation like do, do you know what i mean i don't mean like in terms of like how much money do you have but i mean like do you have to like yeah. budget accordingly because of you know one bike's going to account for quite a bit of your budget you know um because i do everything custom um like when i put out a you know say a mountain bike um that bike started its whole life on earth as an idea in a customer's mm -hmm. mind um so i don't really necessarily have to invest a ton of my capital to make that happen because you know they're sort of paying as we go mm -hmm. um the biggest investment has been in the shop, in my shop, uh, the equipment required, as well as um, the part that I didn't realize was uh, my overhead in materials for like tubing, dropouts, paint, um, all the things required to build a bike. And uh, I basically have to stock like quite a few bikes worth of materials at any given time because of various like um there's just there's not a super like 
consistent supply mm-hmm. of these things. And so if I've got a bike coming up that needs sliding dropouts and the machine shop that makes those sliding dropouts is four months out before they're going to restock. Whoa. If I don't have them in stock, I'm kind of screwed because I can't move forward on the project until those are available. So okay. I, I have to stock a lot of materials to try and be ready for any bike build that comes my way. And that was the overhead I didn't see coming. Um, And it's actually only really been like the beginning of this year that I got to a point where I could say that I've invested in that overhead and I now have that overhead. And it's kind of like a rotating, you know, I've I still am always buying stuff, but, and then running out of stuff and whatever, but I'm, I'm in that balance instead of like trying to acquire that overhead, which I need to have. So, um, yeah, I mean, it's, there's definitely been a couple of things that have cost money. Um, but for individual bikes, it's typically, um, you know, the customer is, is, is paying for that as it, as it is, uh, coming together. So, and the way that the the kind of relationship you have, like there's like all different, um, how would I say this? There's there's all different like levels of, of building something, right? Or providing a mm-hmm. service. And the way that you provide the, the um, or I guess not a service, but the way you provide your product, right? Uh, in the realm of like custom bikes, that's mm-hmm. such a, a very interesting relationship because you know, I guess I'll use a suntan analogy because I really like uh, Tim Ferriss, right? And like uh-huh. uh, four-hour work week stuff. But he, he talked about like suntan. If you're going to um, jump into the suntan business, right, the, the way that you have to set yourself apart with suntan lotion, if you're trying to sell it, you know, the most uh, trying to capture the widest market possible, right? High uh-huh. volume, but, you know, kind of low quality because each purchase is pretty cheap, right? Right. Uh, and so you you might try to market it as in like, I got the cheapest suntan lotion and it has all good ingredients, right? And right. all the customers that you're going to um, genuinely have interactions with are going to, you know, might be fighting for deals um, to reduce the price of it because you're selling it on its price point. You might be fighting yeah. with your competitors to make a cheaper suntan lotion. And then like, what are you doing now? Now you're having like a big, you know, manufacturing process to where you're just trying to streamline the product and that's how you're competing. Whereas yeah. like- if you were to place that on the idea of this might sound crude or crass, but like on bike building, right. And buying like, you know, overseas bikes that are like, you know, cheap and kind of you have to build them as you go because they fall apart. And then there's like this whole other side of it on the other extreme end of it to where it's like someone's out there like building a custom bike for somebody where you don't just, you're not like mincing over price or anything like that. People aren't coming to your door because it's the, you know, the cheapest way to get onto a bike, but they yeah. want like a bike that suits them. They want a bike that they, that they love and to be able to have that kind of relationship with your customer, you know, yeah. that way of, of providing that product that is, that's must be really special, man. Yeah. Well, you know, and that's a, I think you brought up a really important point because that was a bit of a lesson that I had to learn. Um, just, and I guess I saw that more as a business lesson than anything else, but Um, is that, you know, I realized that when I was trying to compete price wise with is basically anybody else, I was doing my customers a disservice Mm -hmm. because that's exactly it is it's like, this isn't, this isn't a mass produced bike 
from one of the big companies that comes from a factory in Asia. And 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 I want to before I get too far is I want to say, like, there's nothing wrong with those bikes. There's nothing in my opinion. There's nothing hugely wrong with mass production. And there are many Asian manufacturers that do a great job. Um, I mean, arguably, all of the guys and those all the people in those factories over there are craftsmen in their own yeah. right. And and like but it is a different product and mm-hmm. there are different things you get and when i was trying to be like okay well i could lower the price here and i could find you a build kit for this price it was absolutely a disservice to my customers because i wasn't willing then to put in that little bit of extra work that made the bike different and made the bike worth what it was um and i was trying to make the the product something that it wasn't and so i think that that's been something is kind of for the last two years is really just realizing that you know if i get a customer who's like well can i get it for cheaper or well can i get it you know what's the cheapest bike you can sell me i just try to explain to them you know i'm not really in the business of trying to get you the cheapest bike you can get because there's already people doing that there are a lot of people you can choose from and you're never going to get um i'm just never going to compete with them and rightfully so um and if somebody says well i want the cheapest bike i can get that's made in the usa well that's maybe a different question, you know, I mean, like ask yourself, well, why do you want it made in the USA? Cause if it's because of quality and craftsmanship, then I have no idea why you're asking for a bike at half price. You know, if that's, yeah. if that's what you're going for, it's like, like the world works on, we get what we pay for. Yeah. And so if you get some, yeah, you just, it just doesn't work out that way. So, um, yeah, it's an interesting thing though. And it really is because that's, you know, being, I had my own business at once at one point and that's what I had to, I would discuss with my, with my partner very frequently, which is like, you know, we want to, we want to set, if we set the price, it's because we're going to deliver on that value. Yeah, exactly. Like in that, and that was cool because then you could, you know, you could look at your market and you can be able to look, well, well, where is it underserved? And what also in a way, like what's compelling to me to serve the market, you know, cause I do have, right. I do have friends who are just like looking to, I worked in a start, startup and they were in the same industry that I had my business in and it was like in CBD right And there. Um, mm-hmm. their approach was to, uh, to reduce the price and to compete at rock bottom prices and it completely changed their product. But that really fit with the way that the, um, the, the CEO uh, kind of operated in life, you know, that right. was, was his preference, you, you know, right. for, for me, it's like, it's just it's interesting because when you approach business, um, there's some limitations by the market that it's really hard to fight with. It'd be like swimming upstream. But yeah, it's so open ended. If you're the kind of person who can work in that environment, um, you could figure out how to make, you know, your own um, personality and your own interests work within the market, you know, and find out what's viable. Definitely. Yeah. And exactly, exactly what you're saying. I mean, there's, there can be more than one opening in a, in a given market for something, you know, maybe a market is totally saturated with the, the highest quality, best price point, whatever, so that, you know, aiming for a cheaper price point is an opening in the market. And, you know, that's one thing, but then, 
there there's totally all kinds of potential openings in markets, you know, like um, is just providing customer service or just providing an idea um, along with that product of like, you know, or even just like sustainably sourced. Like there's all kinds. There's a lot of ways to skin that cat, I think. Yeah. And it reminds me very much of that guy that you went to work for um, who did the tooling for the um, the bottle cages on the bikes, which yeah. is like, you know, well, he he's trying to make these by hand so he can, you know, so he can sell it in that way. And that means something to him. But like, how does he make it more efficient so that he can, you know, get the quantity up so he can actually make cash? And it's like for yep. some personalities, you know, maybe I might be getting this wrong, but some personalities that is compelling where it's like. Here's yeah. the problem. Uh, figure it out. And, you know, other Definitely. people need more structure, but there's real people out there who, who take off that in that environment. Definitely. Yeah. And it's it's a little intimidating because the world is your oyster. Like there are you can't even list the number of possibilities of directions <laughs> you can go with that kind of problem solving. But at mm -hmm. the same time, you know, it can also be super interesting. So. Mm -hmm. That brings me to the um, the notion that yeah, please thanks, buddy. Um, that things aren't often defined by what you do, but by what you don't do. Yeah, right. and um, absolutely. Did, have you found have you found that in in business or even in, in bike building that you were had to limit your scope so that you can focus more on depth instead of breadth? Yeah, you know, I would say that that's right where my business is right now. I would say that uh, Myth Cycles is kind of entering that phase of really kind of discovering who it is. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, but the, I would say that kind of I started out with just like just throwing a lot of stuff at the wall and seeing what stick. And I'm starting down, you know, another path right now, which is kind of like a big thing I've thrown at the wall. But I've also seen a lot of promise in this particular direction, uh, which is full full suspension mountain bikes. Ooh, yeah. And um, so I would say that it's like it's something that Myth Cycles is doing right now. And I, I think in the next like two years, I'll be really solidifying what I'm focusing on and really focusing on like being a lot more efficient in those specific things. And uh, just what you said, like um, kind of providing more depth within those things, you know, being able to just put more time into those things. Um, what's, uh, what's the specific like process and building bikes or aspect of building bikes or frames that you really like? You know, I gotta be honest, the whole, just when I get to go into the shop, that's definitely my favorite part. Um, I do spend a lot of time running the business, um, which again, I think is, has a lot to do with, with this year in particular, um, for various reasons, running the business has gotten a lot more complicated. Mm -hmm. Um, but I mean, just getting into the shop and getting to spend like a full day uninterrupted day in the shop and really getting into the swing of things. And, um, I, but I think honestly that I probably enjoy it so much because I spend so much time <laughs> working on the business, you know, mm -hmm. um,
beginning of the right. business, there was a lot more shop time. I was spending a lot more time in the shop, developing my tooling and organizing things so that it was efficient and kind of like trying out new techniques. And I, and I have to admit, I didn't actually have, I don't, I feel like I didn't enjoy or appreciate the shop time as much mm-hmm. at that time in the business. And at this point, I'm like, oh man, I answered all the emails. I ordered all the bike parts. I sent all the invoices. I get to go and just build bikes today. Wow. Um, and so, and I, I would say that's definitely a big part of it. But for me, if I had to choose one thing, I do really enjoy tool making, um, which is kind of like a skill that, that started working with Ron and, um, and it's not just tool making, but like the process of streamlining something and Mm -hmm. figuring out how to do one thing better and faster and more accurately, all those things. I love that part of it. So um, efficiency, finding efficiency is definitely is something really fun. And I don't get to do that a lot because I kind of just need to make bikes and, and make yeah. it happen. But every once in a while, I get to squeeze in some little tool that I get to make or, you know, just like figure out a process that's better and faster or more accurate or whatever. For, for, and uh, I like that. For making for like doing the tool making and trying to find processes that are more efficient do you are you enjoying that like that process and that that problem solving process or do you more enjoy the results that you get from it like the the feeling of you know excitement that you found a way to make this more efficient Definitely both but I would yeah I would say it's the it's the problem solving that's a lot of fun I mean it's just a puzzle you know and 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 to really think about okay so here's you know five steps that need to happen to these two pieces of metal to like result in this product at the end. Okay. Well, you know, how can I approach it? Maybe I can approach it from this direction. What if I do this first? What if I do that first? What if whatever? So yeah, there's definitely like a, it just feels like a puzzle, you know, you get to, you get to figure out. Um, and, and you don't really know when you solve the you know, it's kind of like because there's nobody that like pops out of the woodwork and just tells you, congratulations, you solved it. It's yeah. like you have to do it that way. And then you're like, OK, this actually worked. And sometimes I'll spend a bunch of time on a on a process to make it more to optimize it. And then I'll do it and I'm like, huh, that didn't work at all. <laughs> and I'll either modify it at that point or even go back to the drawing board. It doesn't happen too much uh, these days because I'm just I'm just getting a little bit better at it. But um, it is always interesting. You know, you, you're never really sure what the end result is going to be. And so it's yeah, it's kind of all an experiment, which is which is always fun. That's cool. Yeah. So would would tool making kind of be like this? Um I used to get be into woodworking and the um and what I would do was to get a straight angle, right? I would try to make my own like my own right it oh yeah, my own right angles so yeah. that I can attach it to the wood and then I can cut straight because it was just so hard to cut straight angles with like a skill saw. Um and then what I what I learned is is like I could just go and buy you know <laughs> a um, a a right angle. But if you were yeah. tool making, like if you couldn't buy that and they didn't exist, you'd like weld the right angle, right? Or you'd like make some kind of tool so that you can use that consistently every time. 
Yeah, that- totally. Yeah, and- very much so. Okay. And, and um, is- yeah. Oh, yeah. And just it's basically just kind of the thing where, like, there are definitely a lot of general tools for me- for metalworking and machining and whatever. Um, but when you get into building bikes, there's all kinds of tools, at least the way I approach it, that I have just little tools that only take me an hour or two to make um, that are usually specific to my process and a process that I've developed for my specific bikes. And so it's usually really the nitty gritty of like how to hold this one little tube at this angle from this axis, this angle from that axis, and a rotation of, you know, 15 degrees or something, whatever it is, and then take a miter cut or something. It's, it's definitely minutia. Like I, I bet that a lot of people would not find it nearly as interesting as I do. But, um, but when you then create something that you can just stick in the machine and it comes and then the parts come out right every time, that feels really good. That's cool. Cause then, wow, that would almost be like, like an engineering thing to where if you were to build something and then it runs and you're like, yes, yeah. it works. Oh, yeah. Definitely. Wow. Definitely. That would be really I mean, gratifying. that's what the first, that's what the first full suspension felt like. I was like, man, this thing is actually like rideable. This is so crazy. Just having overthought every aspect of it for months and months and months. And then finally building it and being like, huh, I can actually ride this thing. It's just, it's totally mind blowing. Cool. When it came to like building, you know, your first full suspension, um, if you don't mind, how does that, how does that situation look? Do you like role model your design after other designs and then figure out how you want to, you know, change it to your liking over time? Or are you just like using your understanding of of like physics and and metal work to know what kind of angles and stuff you need? It's a little bit of everything. When I approached my, you know, my full suspension design, um, I decided to go the world, the world of bicycle full suspensions um, are very different from a lot of the rest of the bike world in that there's a lot of different suspension designs and a lot of them have patents on them. And so unless you want to like license a design specifically and really go down that road of kind of of doing whatever there's only so many really designs to choose from that aren't patented and that are um you know kind of open open for anybody to build and so i chose something very simple it's a it's just a single pivot with a um a direct action on the shock a non-linkage driven full or a single pivot and so in that way i mean there are a lot of bikes out there that are really similar to this and i definitely looked at a lot of what people were doing and really just kind of like figured out okay so why do people do this okay why do people do that and that was a huge part of it was just being like looking at a design and then just kind of picking it apart and being like i wonder why they did this i wonder why they did that Mm -hmm. um until my understanding was good enough to where i could make my own decisions and came up with my own design based on you know the parameters that were important to me Mm -hmm. um 
And then it was when it really became mine and like my idea and my design is in the minutia. You know, it was the, it was all the little things of just like, OK, so what's the plate that's going to hold on to the axle for the pivot? You know, like that was purely that was all my design, you know, and wow. um, or even just like the dust caps for the bearings that keep the bearings clean, just like all these little tiny things that there's no point or way to like copy that from another, from anybody else. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, I, I didn't really copy anything, but the overall idea is something that's not new at all. There are definitely other bike companies, you know, doing something similar. Mm -hmm. That's really cool. It's, uh, it's something that I have always, you know, like, or harken back to when I would write music and like poetry was like originality was just a, a new amalgam of old experiences. Right. Yeah, totally. You just hold on one second, please. Okay. You you, you turned all the lights off. You're trying to you're trying to show me that no, the power the went off. No, because you just turned this light off and then you then left. Why did the TV not? Because because you're right now. The TV I hit on and then it just goes through full screen. Then you need to change the input or something, buddy. Why I'm not you... able to help you right now. You turned my light off and left the room and said all the lights are off. <laughs> sorry about that eric it's all good you can <laughs> if you need to handle something that's totally fine no it's good and my son he like um he came in here and he's like oh all the lights in the living room are off dad and the tv won't turn on like the power's out but i'm on <laughs> but i'm like on the computer with you and then he's like nice. i'm like uh okay and then right as he shuts the door i just notice my lights go off and then he comes back in and he's like dad i think the power's out I'm like, <laughs> 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 I'm pretty sure it's not, bud. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> nice. <laughs> yeah. Um, so with when you're like bu building all of those intricacies into into that full suspension bike, are you like having to what? What it says? What percentage on average for for just any of your bikes are you manufacturing the individual parts? And what percentage are you putting together um, pre-existing parts that you like purchase? You know, for the full suspension, it's definitely a way higher percentage. Mm -hmm. um, with, you know, with like with the hardtails, it's definitely different because, I mean, the whole industry is based on just putting together parts that were manufactured by other companies just because typically they're the types of parts that I don't have any way to make, you know? Yeah. Um, so like for steel tubing, um, we all use what's called like double butted or triple butted steel tubing, uh, which just means that the wall thickness of the tubing is thicker on the ends of the tube where you weld mm -hmm. it and it's thinner in the center. So it's, it's like a weight savings thing, but it also makes the tube flex in a more controlled way. Um, oh, really? But, it, 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 yeah. It, because it doesn't have as much material in the um, center of the or in the middle of the tube. Exactly. Wow. Yeah. Um, and so, but but the uh, the machine to make a butted tube, you know, this the, it's called a draw bench, um, is like a million dollar or multi million oh dollar gosh. industrial machine. So it's like it's not that 
I don't want to make those tubes or I don't whatever. It's that it's just not even remotely in the realm of possibility for, yeah, yeah. for somebody on my scale. Um, and so, yeah, so, I mean, we use budded tubing that's made by other companies and then we use dropouts that are either cast or machined by other companies typically. Um, What's a dropout? Oh, uh, it is the part of the bike where like the wheel bolts in. Mm -hmm. So in the back of the bike, it's, it's like, you know, kind of the things, one of them has a brake mount on it and one of them has like a derailleur mount on it, but it's where you put the wheel in and then either put the through axle through it or close the, the, um, the quick release Mm -hmm. onto it. But yeah, it's basically just the part that the, uh, the wheel bolts into. So yeah. So like those are usually a CNC um, machined part and there's definitely companies out there who do make their own dropouts, um, you know, whether because they have access to CNC machining or whatever. But um, I would say, yeah. So, I mean, when it comes to that kind of stuff, I mean, a lot of that stuff is made by their companies and how we put it together and what we do to modify it before we put it together is really what makes it ours. Um, with the full suspension, it's a little different. I do have a lot of parts made, um, they get laser cut. So Mm -hmm. I use a metal laser cutter. And so I make a bunch of CAD files and I send them out and they send me a bunch of laser cut parts. Usually I do some post machining to those parts to kind of finish them up, put some threaded holes or, or like, uh, whatever, you know, to that part to finish it out before I weld it into the frame. But, um, but, you know, even that's being kind of like made by another company. But again, like a, la- a metal laser cutting machine is like a multi-million dollar purchase. So mm-hmm. it's not really something that yeah. <laughs> we're going to invest in. So and regarding the, the hardtails and like, you know, and having the, the for the dropouts and such. Uh, yeah. Does, is that like even a big Archimedes lever in the sense that or in the sense that if you had creative control over that, like, or if you were, you know, you were making all of those specifically yourself, would it, would you really be able to change the features on that much to change the, the riding experience? Potentially. And depending on the application, definitely. Mm-hmm. I mean, if I had the space and the time to learn, uh, CNC machining, uh, or, and the capital to invest in it as well. Mm-hmm. I would definitely, I would love to have, you know, like a CNC milling machine, um, in my shop. And I would, I would definitely put it to use, but it's also just another skill set. You know, I've mm-hmm. had to develop a lot of skill sets, whether it's TIG welding or manual machining on a lathe, manual machining on a mill, um, you know, all these different things, tool making, powder coating, just all kinds of random stuff. And so to, and I mean, God, not even to, <laughs> to get into like, you know, bookkeeping and building yeah. a website and all <laughs> that stuff. And so it's kind of like when, you know, when I think about getting into CNC machining as well, it's like the, the, the benefits don't outweigh what it would take for me to get there at this point. Mm -hmm. But you know, in the future, there's, there's always the possibility that I would get into something like that. And there's always something that I look at on a dropout or on a brake mount or something like that, that I'm like, Oh man, it'd be super cool if this, if I could just do it a little different in this way, you know? Oh, wow. Really? So, 
Yeah. I mean, there's always, I think that's kind of like the curse of the designer, you know, is like, there's nothing I can use or look at that. I'm like, that I wouldn't be able to change in some way to better suit what I'm doing with it. So, you know, I mean, yeah, it's just kind of the way it goes. (laughs) It's, it's just so cool to to hear that and to hear like how much, you know, depth is, is there for you. Um, in this like, you know, learning process and this like crafts person arc. Um, because I would look at like, I look at a mountain bike and this is being coming from, you know, a perspective of someone who's not even in, into recreational mountain biking, right. Doesn't have any much experience there. Um, like not even familiar with like the downhill riding and, and like all those differences, but I wouldn't even think, I wouldn't have thought that the angle of the forks, right. Uh Would change your riding exp- like would change your riding experience i'd look at a bike from afar and be like oh that's a bike like all right. the functions of you know the pedals are in the right spot the seats in the right spot it doesn't make you lean forward like a road bike it, you sit right. upright like that's the only dramatic difference that i would notice but there's a lot of subtle differences that would dramatically change your riding experience on a mountain bike is that correct yeah i mean geometry is a I feel like there's got to be a good analogy for it in the world of just like it's it's one of those things where it is literally impossible to arrive at, you know, capital capital T, the correct answer, Mm -hmm. because it's every correct answer is going to be different for each person for the type of riding they do for you know the trails they ride like every change in geometry suits some aspect you know of some person better or worse Mm. and so you can spend your entire life designing bikes and changing geometry and you'll never arrive at like the perfect bike you can arrive at the perfect bike for this person or for yourself mm-hmm. but it's it's totally just such a deep well of of like i guess trying things out and seeing what works and seeing what you like and seeing what you don't like and really talking to people about their experiences and seeing what they do and don't like mm-hmm. um yeah, there's, it feels just totally limitless. Um, and yeah, it's, it's definitely a really interesting part of the design process, arguably the most important part of the design process for sure. Oh, really? Yeah. And it's, it's, but it's something you can't see, you know, like you can see if, if something has like a way slacker head angle or something like that, but you can't see that it has a 65 degree head angle or something. It's like, it's, it's, it's not, it's just what you were kind of talking about is like folks see a bike and they're like, okay, well, like hopefully that rides well, or it either rides well or it doesn't, but they don't always necessarily, you can't see the geometry and how and like watch it work. And so people have to feel that, mm-hmm. which is, which is very different for sure. Whoa. And what are some, um, what are some places on a bike that offer like the highest, um, what do you call it? Or are, are, are the most responsible for 
Hold on, let me try to put that together a lot better, Eric. Sorry. I think I, I think no, I think I, I kind of am getting what you're talking about. Like the points of the geometry that are the the most pertinent to think about, kind of. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I mean, the true answer to that question is when is is that you have to look at the geometry as a whole and how each thing affects everything else because mm-hmm. the way bikes work like you can never change one thing that doesn't affect something else and so it's mm-hmm. like there's every change you make is kind of like this ripple effect and um or this more like a more butterfly effect is what i should say mm-hmm. um of how it changes everything else but like for me i think the biggest most important things to kind of pay attention to are things like bottom bracket height um and generally front center which is a which is basically the difference or the distance between the center of the bottom bracket and the center of the front wheel most mm-hmm. people refer to that in terms of head tube angle and reach which kind of gets you there in a circuitous way um but i think the most important thing is not to say, you know, if, if you're looking for a bike is not to say, well, um, someone told me I should have a 66 degree head tube angle on my bike. So I'm going to look for a bike with a 66 degree head tube angle. The biggest thing is like, ask yourself what kind of riding you're going to be doing and where you're going to be riding and what, what you want from that experience. And a good designer, somebody, if you're getting a custom bike made, will be able to translate that into the geometry that will work for you. Um, but as far as, you know, if you're going to ride downhill, then get a downhill bike with downhill geometry. If you're going to ride cross-country stuff, then get a cross-country bike with good cross-country geometry. But, um, you know, the definitely the best way is, is to just ride bikes if you can. Um, you know, if you don't have access to somebody who's going to design something for mm-hmm. you to your geometry and things like that. So... Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think it's just kind of like suiting the application, I think, is the most important part, more than focusing on a specific number, I guess. Mm-hmm. That that makes complete sense. And that makes it almost uh, all the more compelling looking at your predicament, because that's like so leaves so much room for like uh, artistic, like craftsmanship. Like, yeah, that is, that is so that's really incredible because it's not just like, well, here's the thing, right? There's so many different yeah. ways to approach it that is specific to to the person's um, what they're going to be riding. Yeah, definitely. It's exciting. And it's it's um, it's it can be very overwhelming, but it can also like even for myself, um, for sure, like just the sheer number of differences in geometry that you can go with. And then beyond that, you know, the different parts that you can put on a bike that will make it perform a certain way, you know, in one way or another. But, um, but at the same time, it feels really good when, when that final product comes together and, and does what you want it to do, you know? Mm-hmm. And for, for, for yourself, because you do custom bikes, you wouldn't specialize in a particular like geometry or design of, of like a hardtail, right? You know, I, 
I do actually. Um, and I think that the, the reason that I do is, is actually just because of exactly what we're talking about is because, I mean, I will build a road bike or a gravel bike or, a, um, I mean, any type of, you know, I mean, a bike polo bike or a dirt jump bike or whatever. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> but I definitely have my niche of, the type of bike that I have the most experience with and that I'm the best at designing. And, you know, every bike builder is going to have their own niche of, you know, just what they, what they do. And that can be a really challenging part of, you know, of saying, well, what do I, what do I, you know, specialize in or what do I focus on? What do I do? And a lot, and there are some, some builders who are just never building even remotely the same thing twice. Mm -hmm. And, but for me, it's really come down to like wanting to make hardtail mountain bikes and now full suspension, single pivot bikes the best I can. And I don't focus on as much on like road bikes, um, because it's just, it's too much. (laughs) It's too much. I'd rather get better at one thing or, or a list of things I should say, um, then, you know, becoming well-rounded, but, you know, doing, doing other stuff is fun as well. You know, I, I build some tandems, um, which I really enjoy doing because it's something that, uh, my wife and I do a lot. And, uh, and, you know, I'm always doing something a little bit different and a little bit new to keep me on my feet, to keep me, keep me, uh, or I should say on my toes, um, and keep me, uh, you know, learning and uh-huh. developing. It puts you out of your comfort zone a little bit. But, exactly. But you know, you have like a, a keen interest and commitment to a particular like niche. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah. I'm, I, I'm trying to, trying to be, I think it's part of kind of what you were talking about before of like, of all the different of trying maybe different things in the business as opposed mm-hmm. to like focusing, um, on certain parts of the business. That's like one of them is just like kind of focusing on more of a certain type of bike and mm-hmm. doing, you know, doing that as, as well as I can. Yeah. That, yeah. That makes sense. And I can almost see like, you know, there, there is that perhaps that opportunity and, you know, in that market and the industry to be well-rounded, but I can almost see, um, from my experience in, in business, when it's really open-ended to get lost on not committing on one particular thing and then not being known for that particular thing. Right. Right. If it developed like enough depth and I don't want to like say, you know, no generalist would make it, I imagine, but I'm just saying like, there's probably a level of depth you have to get to at least yeah. with one, you know, type of build, right. Or, um, definitely to be viable and competitive in the market. Definitely. Yeah. And, and, you know, the bike world is pretty big, but it's also the custom bike world, or at least the customers who buy custom bikes world is pretty small. And so people talk amongst themselves. And so I think it is, it is valuable to have, you know, in my case, just mountain bikers talking about myth cycles and, um, you know, what myth can do um, and their capabilities and, oh yeah, they made me this bike and this is how this bike is great or whatever. So, um, yeah, you know, and I'm, I'm just one guy. I, I have to do a lot. So a big part of my thing right now is just figuring out how to manage my time, you know, and that's, that's just one of many things that I do to try and be more efficient with my time. Yeah, because if you don't let it, like your um, your professional life can completely overrun your your personal life, right? 
Oh yeah, definitely. The, Especially working for yourself. And almost to the detriment of your professional life at some point, right? Yeah. And definitely to the detriment of both your, you know, professional life and your personal life. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, um, like one big thing that I try to really push is that I have business hours. You know, I'm, when I'm, when I'm doing business stuff, it's during, it's from eight o'clock in the morning till five at night. And I don't do business stuff during the weekends because if you do business stuff kind of any time of day, like, man, you will never not be working on the business. Yeah. And, um, and it's kind of, yeah, it's just, a, it's a, it's a tricky thing, but, um, but it's a balance and everybody has a different, what they're willing that for, you know, what they're willing to let that balance be. So, um, I think it's just trying to find what, what that is for me has been something I've been really working on recently. I know this might be a really hard question to answer because it just all depends on the riding situation you put the bike through, but does geometry, um, does that contribute to uh, energy expenditure or like how much energy it takes to go X amount of distance? And like I said, I, I know that it would be it would be different because, you know, one geometry for downhill would probably be a lot harder, if not impossible, to like go uphill with. Right. Um, yeah. But in like even in a down, is there like a certain geometry like downhill that would reduce the amount of energy expenditure and a certain geometry uphill that would reduce the amount of energy expenditure or does geometry not contribute to that? that much? It, it definitely contributes to that in a very, very big way. Um, and I mean, energy expenditure is like, it's half of what we do on a bike, you know? Mm -hmm. Um, and there's certainly, you know, there's not just energy expended when we're going uphill, but there's also energy expended when we're, when we're going downhill. So, you know, the finer points of how, how a bike descends or climbs in terms of whether or not it's enjoyable or not, there's also in that there's definitely mixed in like how easy it is to pedal up. And again, it's, it's, it's usually stuff that suits a specific um, a specific type of riding. Like, yeah. you know, we have these really long grinding uphills, uh, around here where you can be doing an uphill for a really long time. And so something like a seat tube angle really affects how efficient you are in that. Mm -hmm. And if you have a really slack seat angle and your seat is really far back, you know, when you get onto that steep climb and you're trying to climb away for 45 minutes, the the fact that the the whole bike is tilted back and you're not over the pedals anymore you're over the rear wheel mm -hmm. it's just not as it's just not as good but then it's same same thing where if you've got a steep seat tube angle and you're really far forward and you're riding mostly kind of like rolling hills or flat stuff you're going to be way too far forward you're going to have a ton of pressure on your hands um and it's just not going to be as efficient. So I would say that geometry really has to do with balancing your efficiencies, you know, your efficiency in um, you know, steering in descending, your efficiency in steering in ascending, your efficiency in pedaling while going up, you know, all of these things come together and you have to, you have to choose what's important and then choose what you're willing to let go by the wayside as well. Oh, wow. That's cool. I, and do you, you mentioned something about, um, the, like the double butted, um, uh, head yeah. tubes. 
Um, uh, yeah, just tubing in general. Yeah. And you talked about flexion. Um, how does how does uh, flexion of a bike frame play into the the mechanics of, of using that bike? Like, um, how does it affect your riding experience? Um, it's it's something that can be more of a kind of it can be more of a factor for other materials, mm -hmm. um, depending on what you know what the bike is made of, but, um, it does come into play with all materials, just more with some than others for working in steel. The way the bike flexes is definitely a huge part of what I think about in the design process. Mm -hmm. And depending on the diameter of the tubing, as well as the budding profile of the tubing and the way the tube is put into the bike, um, you know, you have the bike wanting to flex in a lot of different ways. And, you know, one of them is that when you land from like a jump or something like that, uh, you, the top tube, it, basically the fork flexes outwards. So mm -hmm. it takes some of the impact. Um, but the fork flexes basically, to, you know, towards the front of the bike, which means that, the top tube flexes downward. Um, it's kind of hard to describe, but, um, so that, that flex is a good flex because it's, it's something that absorbs impact on the bike and makes it a little bit easier to ride and easier to control. Um, but then like torsional, um, flexibility or, you know, torsional flex, which is, the head tube rotating in relation to the seat tube. So oh. basically the, the head tube or the fork going left to right. Mm -hmm. That's something that we generally don't want too much of. You do want a little bit of it, but you don't want it too much. So again, depending on the profile of the tubing you use, um, as well as just how it's integrated into the bike, you can kind of change this stuff. Mm -hmm. And, yeah, it's all it's all stuff that I think about um, probably more than I should. <laughs> <laughs> so like the the between like the head tube almost um, or where like the forks are, that's almost like the tip of a triangle without the bottom in it. Right. And you're like yeah. putting pressure on it and it's splaying the point, that top point of the triangle towards the ground, which. Yep. Oh, that's really interesting. Yeah. And these are, these are small flexes, you know, I mean, like this isn't a huge amount of flex, uh -huh. um, but it's, it's definitely noticeable. And if you ride a bike with, you know, um, with super, super heavy gauge tubing, the first thing that you notice will be that it feels heavy, but it'll feel heavy partially because it's not flexing. Uh -huh. Um, and yeah, movement is always a good thing. So but controlling controlling that movement and making sure there's, you know, the amount of it that you want in the correct places is it's all part of bike design. That's interesting. Yeah, I, I had a I used to drive a um, a van and it was like you know one of the big sh the Chevy like the Sprinter vans or whatever. Yeah. Um, and when you I would do it for installing uh, windshields on in cars and when you would turn I think there was a model of it that had a lot of body roll. And which uh -huh. is like kind of that torsional flexing you're talking about, I think, but yep. in a very dramatic and big, heavy vehicle. And you could, right. you could really feel how that would affect turning. Like that whole thing feels like it could just like roll over on you on a bad day. Um, right. And you would, you would lose a lot of that ground feel and a lot of the accuracy in turning. So I would imagine on a subtle level, 
playing into like mountain biking and putting it through those extreme environments, you know, with jumping, turning and all those things like, yeah, I, I could see how that could really affect things. Definitely. Yeah. And it's, it, it takes a while in mountain biking to get to a point where you can even tell the difference mm -hmm. in these subtleties. But, um, I think that's also been a skill set that I've really focused on is being able to tell when there's a difference in head tube angle or front center length or top tube flex or any of those things, you know, it's an acquired skill, just like anything else. Yeah, and you're almost like a, I mean, like you don't have to be, but it sounds like you definitely are, but is a purveyor of the riding experience, right? Like you, you know the riding experience on an intimate level. Definitely, yeah. And that's, uh, that's the improvement of the riding experience is always something that we're going for when making a custom bike for somebody. I'd almost say that, you know, how we talked about like you, some people could romanticize the thing that they that they love, right? Or yeah. that, um, and that if you do something you love, you'll never work a day in your life. And how like the reality of that doesn't really often live up to that, right? Yeah. Um, it seems like though something that would be really important is um, almost being a customer yourself, right? In the sense that you like genuinely yeah. care about the the experience of this thing, like being a you know comedians would say being like a fan of comedy, right? Like you right. love it for the sake of it and because then it's like you know you you kind of know a little bit anyways because like you said you couldn't just build for yourself right you got to also yeah. market but you know a little bit who your customer is and you have like a deep love for that and you come from a place of like being part of that community yeah and i think that that's one of the cool things about how many custom bike builders there are out there not that there's a you know, a ton, but, um, there are certainly folks all over the country doing this and everybody has their own riding style and the things that they focus on and the things that they do the most. And when, you know, when people are looking for a custom builder, it's super cool because they can talk to a lot of custom builders, really pay attention to what those builders are doing and find somebody that, you know, that, fits for them, um, that makes that, that, uh, they can feel like this person can best, you know, understand the place they're coming from in mm -hmm. what kind of bike they want. And so I think it really is helpful to, to have, you know, like the type of bikes and the type of riding that you are best at and really to like, to, to focus on that and to make sure people understand that as well. Mm -hmm. Do you, um, the materials that you, what kind of materials do, do you use to build, uh, to, to build bike frames? Like you mentioned that you use, um, steel, but are there other kind of metals that you would use to build a frame or, or other materials? Yeah, um, I've built a few titanium frames and um, but steel and titanium are really the, the materials that I'm focusing on. Um, I, I do weld aluminum and I've done a bunch of aluminum welding for, you know, repairs or fabrication for other types of <clears throat> of work. Um, but aluminum bikes aren't really something that I'm focusing on. And so steel, steel is really the material that makes me feel the most creative 
in my design process when I'm designing a bike and how I want it to ride as well as, you know, how I can make it unique. And for me, that's really important. That's like one of the most important things. And so I try to, yeah, I do a lot in steel kind of, um, mostly for that reason. How does, um, riding like, uh, a steel bike compared to riding, uh, an aluminum bike or like a titanium bike? Like what are the difference between the materials? Because I come from a place, um, at least I came from a place and I'm, I'm learning a lot now, uh, where I would always look at trying to shed weight and yeah. without talking about anyone in the mountain biking or biking community, I'm like, Oh yeah. Okay. Aluminum looks really light. And I would ride, uh, a steel bike, but like, let's just say from Walmart, right. To where yeah. there wasn't really any design for, for the efficiency of the geometry, or there wasn't much design for the efficiency of the geometry, not much consideration for the ride feeling on these, like, and I'm talking like the cheapest bike that I, that I could find. And I've right. had experiences like that, trying to go like uphill. Right. And it was a lot harder. Um, and then I would go and pick up this other bike that was super light and I can go uphill, but I always liken that to, um, or with a little more ease to the material that was used. Um, but then I see people, not just yourself, right? I see these like, you know, really high end mountain bikes that might be like mass produced. I don't know, like a Kona, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And they have, I think they have steel frames. Yep. Um, totally. And that completely threw it out the window because I was like, well, wait, I thought the point was to get a light material that won't necessarily break right away on you. So what, what yeah. was the flaw in my understanding there and what are the differences between materials? Well, you know, so the three, if, if we don't get into carbon fiber, um, you know, if we just stick to the metals, the main yeah. metals you're going to see are, you know, uh, what you mentioned, aluminum, steel, and titanium. Um, and the vast majority of the metal bikes you're going to see on the market today are definitely going to be aluminum. Um, next in line is probably steel. And then after that, titanium and titanium is is last in line purely because of the cost. It's, it's, it's just mm -hmm. expensive to source titanium material and it's an expensive material to work as well. Mm -hmm. Um, so the major differences you're going to find is that, um, aluminum definitely tends to be pretty light, fairly light, um, as far as things go. And it can be made very, very light. Um, the ride quality is very stiff. So, um, it doesn't flex nearly as much as a steel or titanium bike will. Um, and without getting into all of the crazy stuff on mm -hmm. why it doesn't flex or does flex or whatever, mm -hmm. I don't, I won't bore you with all that. Yeah, you're good. <laughs> um, but generally aluminum bikes tend to flex less, um, and they tend in a lot of cases to be fairly light. Um, steel bikes tend to flex a little bit more, or I'd say a lot more than aluminum does. Mm -hmm. Um, but the fatigue life of, so the fatigue life of a metal just has to do with like how many times it can take a force, whether that's a flexing force or a, a, actually enough force to bend the material. Mm -hmm how many times it can take that force before actually failing because every material has a fatigue life. Um, and steel has a very long fatigue life. Mm -hmm. So not only can it flex, but it can flex in these ways 
and not break. Mm-hmm. Um, and so steel is seen as a very durable material. Um, and it's durable not just but there's a very big difference between durability and strength. It's mm-hmm. a strong material, but it's also just durable. Um, it's also repairable, which is something that aluminum bikes are not. Um, you can repair a steel frame. Oh, really? Uh, yeah, you can repair a steel frame generally, depending on the repair that needs mm-hmm. to be done. Uh, but aluminum has to be post-weld heat treated, which is not a not a realistic thing when you're fixing a frame so yeah anyway and then with yeah um and then just to kind of like round it out here the the titanium um it'll flex actually even more but because of the cross sections people use in the tubing they use um the material is more flexible but the bikes tend to be about as stiff as a steel frame or, you know, or sometimes a little bit stiffer. You can change a lot of these based on the tubing you, you know, you choose for the design of the frame. Um, but when you're looking at the, the thing that I find really interesting, because kind of coming back to what you talked about with like weight, mm-hmm. is that something I find very interesting is that it's this is totally one of those things that's attached to people's experience in like and 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 just how much they're capable of knowing about the bike so for instance what's super interesting is a lot of times people will ride say a really heavy walmart bike Mm -hmm. and they'll just be like oh this steel bike is so heavy but sometimes it's an aluminum bike (laughs) <laughs> because you can overbuild the crap out of an aluminum bike and put heavy components on it and it'll be just it'll be a boat anchor. <laughs> but the thing is 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 people have this relationship where like not everybody can tell the difference between an aluminum and a steel bike. As a as a metal worker, I can tell the difference between those materials and a bike, you know, from 10 feet away and people will 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 automatically assume if a bike is heavy, it was steel. And if it was light, it was aluminum. And I've seen people make those mistakes with both materials in both directions. <laughs> and so a lot of times it's really our per- our like perception and our inability to necessarily tell the difference. And so as far as weight goes, I mean, you can actually have a very lightweight steel bike if it's not overbuilt and if it's if it's got a good build kit on it, a build kit's a huge part of the of how much a bike weighs. You know, a bike's mm-hmm. gonna weigh between 26 and 30 pounds for like a, a good mountain bike. Mm-hmm. And, you know, like the frame weight on that, at least for a hardtail, is like seven pounds or eight pounds. The rest Whoa. of that's the build kit. And so if you you can take the lightest frame in the world and if you put a $500 build kit on it or a $200 build kit on it, mm-hmm. that thing's going to weigh a lot. Wow. So it's not just, you know, it's not just the frame and, and that kind of thing that contributes to weight, but it's also it's the rest of the bike. It's 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 how all the bikes come together to to form this whole, you know, you completely got me because that's so surprising to me. That is wild. 
Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a huge part of, of what the bike is, is that build kit, you know? Yeah. Um, and so the frame is really just the beginning. <laughs> it's a very important part, obviously, because it's where all the geometry is. And, um, and it is a big part of, you know, how it's the way it flexes is going to be a big part of it. Um, but yeah, it's just, it's so interesting when people, for instance, whenever people pick up one of my bikes and they say, Whoa, is that steel? That's light. And I say, <laughs> yeah, like steel is not heavy, but like a cheap steel bike with crappy parts on it is heavy, but it's, yeah. it's not purely because it's a steel frame. So. Wow. And, yeah. and just, I got two things in closing. There's a, yeah. I, I had a guest on his name's Mike, uh, Kuryuk, I think yeah, yeah, yeah. he, he builds like custom wheels and how much do the, or rims, um, how much for bikes, how much do the custom rims play into the, into the weight component? Like where's the, the, the biggest, what's responsible for most of that weight? Um, you know, there's different ways to approach this. And so rims is a very interesting one because you can definitely have like heavier rims and lighter rims. Um, but some of the other factors to consider when thinking about rim weight are also, that at least in a mountain bike, the way that rim flexes is a really mm -hmm. big part of it. Um, for instance, you can go with carbon fiber rims that don't flex nearly as much, and they're also very light. Or you can go with a, even a lightweight set of aluminum rims, and those rims might be very similar, but those aluminum rims are going to flex a lot more. Uh -huh. And so... So that's one thing, you know, to think about. But the other thing to think about is in terms of rim weight is that it's rotational weight. Um, it's kind of like, have you ever heard the whole thing? Like in it's, it's basically like the weight of your shoes. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of like the one oh, pound yeah. on your feet is five pounds equate equates to five pounds on your back. Yeah, I think about um, mountaineering boots a lot because those yeah. are like four pounds. Exactly. And it's just because you're moving them so much, you know, every step you have to move them again, you know, bring them into, you have to accelerate them and decelerate them every time you take a step um, that takes energy. And so rims are the same way. It's rotational weight. So it's kind of like by saving weight on those rims, you're going to save it's, it's a really valuable place to save weight, which isn't necessarily going to come across when you hang the bike on a scale, yeah. you know, um, which is, which is kind of like, which is a great analogy for how I feel, um, about weight in general. And I think a lot of weight is put on bikes, a lot of, or I should say a lot of weight is put on weight. A lot of, uh, attention is put on weight mm -hmm. in bikes and, I think the only people it really matters for are are racers, you know, because like that's going to come through in podium results in yeah. like race results. But the truth is, is like if your bike is a little bit heavier, but it performs better and you saved, you know, three or four thousand dollars on it because of that, like and a lot of times that's worth it, you know. Um, and you're just gonna, you might go a little bit slower, but like, unless you're timing every single ride you go out on and all that matters to you is like how fast you can get something done, just obsessing over weight can be such a dangerous road. You know, yeah. you can really end up with a bike that rides very poorly if all you care about is weight. Mm -hmm. 
So, and that's what we're out to do is have fun. So like, yeah. I don't know, that's just my, that's my, that's my perspective is, you know, weight is a secondary thing to, uh, to performance. Yeah. That makes sense. There's all, then it's kind of like a, like a circle, right? There's like, if you focus too heavily on one aspect or one little, uh, side of the circle, it can become, um, out of round. Right. And for some people Definitely. that's exactly what they need. But usually for your like, if you're not racing, right. And if you don't have this like specific goal in mind, it, it's kind of like just keeping a well-rounded circle, uh, relative yeah. to what your experience is looking like, you know, downhill riding cross country, um, yeah. it's optimal. It's interesting. Well, and I mean, I think that's a, that, yeah, you're totally right. I mean, it, it depends on the person and what their goals are, you know, mm -hmm. like, because if, if a guy, if one biker is talking to another biker and the first one's his, his, you know, his thing is like enjoying the downhill and like enjoying going downhill on a mountain bike. But if he's talking to somebody who times every single one of his rides, maybe he's super big into Strava mm -hmm. and, you know, how he places on like the Strava results are where he gets his enjoyment on his rides, then they're not, then really they're not speaking the same language, you know? Wow. I mean, the, the, because the guy who's trying to go faster is going to be like, yeah, but your bike is heavy. And the guy who's trying to enjoy the downhill is like, yeah, but your bike has no suspension or, <laughs> or whatever the, whatever that, you know, shortcoming yeah. may, may be perceived as. So again, the question becomes, what do you want to use the bike for? Like, where does your joy come from and build the bike to that? Not, wow. you know, not what someone else's joy is, you know, I mean, for some people where they get their joy is what color the bike is. And yeah. I'm not even kidding, you know, <laughs> wow, it's really? like, and so it's like, I mean, people, I feel like frame builders are really bad at, you know, kind of, um, uh, like judging their customers for being like, he took, you know, he took three weeks to decide on what color he wants. Like who mm -hmm. cares? It's just the color, but it's like, man, some people that is, if that's where their joy is coming from, then that is important. Yeah. So you have to, again, you have to identify that. And that's, I feel like that's such an important thing. I mean, obviously anywhere in life, but mm -hmm. like, if you're going to get a bike, it's like, okay, well, why are you getting a bike? You know, are yeah. you getting a bike to get in shape? Okay, cool. That's great. If you're getting a bike for the downhill, okay, buy one for that. If you're mm -hmm. buying a bike to be well-rounded, then, you know, get something for that. But like, don't let other people's priorities drive what you are going to enjoy in that experience because yeah, you got to be true to yourself to, or else you're not actually going to enjoy it. And you sounds like you're just an awesome cur curator for the experience too, just because of the way that you, you know, the way that you think about your, your services in relation to your own customer. You know, I think about that with teachers a lot where you bring in teachers and it's like, I'm teaching jujitsu and it's like, you know, you could teach the whole class as you want, which is like maybe all these competitive kids who are like going to grow up to be crushers and competing in all these tournaments. But like yeah. you get a kid and he comes in and he's just like, you know, like kind of la da da and not like putting 10 out of 10 effort into it, but he's right. just he's showing up, but he really likes it. And that kid right. might be a recreational student. And instead of like coming in there with like, you know, this is exactly how it's going to go. You kind of got to observe the other people, the community that you're working with and learn how to engage them and meet them where they are. 
Um, as long as it's within appropriate, you know, you got to set your boundaries too. That's a, another balance, yeah. but yeah, yeah, definitely. That's, that's cool, man. And it seems like, man, I wish I had that for trail running. Cause like you're in such a cool experience where you like, you're providing this, this product to where you get to like meet them with what experience they're looking for. And it just seems like you get to like, you have the opportunity to, to learn about, I don't, um, I just take away the customer. You learn about like a, a fellow mountain biker and you get to learn what, what they want out of mountain biking and you get to help facilitate that experience by providing them with like a means to experience it, you know, like how, tra- yeah. how, how shoes could kind of affect the way that you feel during your run. A bike really is like the medium between you and the experience of riding and very much. So how you build that affects their relationship with the, the joy of riding. That's cool. Yeah. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's really interesting. And um, I think it just I don't know, I well, and that's that's where the that's kind of where the like the the experience and the focus on the experience is kind of actually where the the name of my company myth um, myth cycles came came from is because like those experiences in my, you know, in my life, at least translate to stories they translate to like those stories that we kind of take with us through life and i guess i kind of see that as like all of our experiences just adding to our own personal mythologies and so that was kind of like the the point is that focus on the experience and the focus on what's important to you um that brought me to kind of that name so that's yeah. Cool. Well, thank you very much, Eric. I really appreciate your time. Where could people find out more about Myth Cycles? Uh, the easiest way is to just check out MythCycles.com. That's M-Y-T-H-C-Y-C-L-E-S.com. You can also just Google me. Um, it's the first thing that'll come up. Um, there's a lot of info on the web page, uh, but you can also follow me on Instagram, just MythCycles on Instagram. Um, and actually, that's a really fun one because I do try to post a lot of pictures and like it's one of the best ways to keep updated on, you know, all the crazy stuff that I'm getting into. Um, but yeah. And if you, you know, if you're interested in a bike or anything like that, just contact me through the web page. or if you have any questions, I'm always, I'm always trying to answer folks questions as best I can. Um, and so, yeah, I'm always, always interested in hearing people's feedback too, you know? Yeah. And your Instagram is, is awesome because like, I mean, I, I'm not trying to like speak in hyperbole, but your, your builds are really cool. And not even for someone who's like just a geek in, in terms of mountain biking, but the aesthetic quality of the builds that you do. And even like, I'll be that person, but like the colors that you put, yeah. right? Like it, it's, <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, it, it's really pretty. And that's where I, you're the first person that I ever met, um, you know, through, through Joe was like, uh, um, that was building custom bikes, like, and then just yeah. stepping into that world and, and seeing what it looks like. Man, I was blown away because I could appreciate like a custom. I, I don't mean this to denigrate your your um, craftsmanship, but I could appreciate a custom couch, right? Where you come yeah. in and the couch does yeah. it, it's like built, you know, uniquely, and you're like, "Whoa, this is cool!" But then, like, I come into bikes and realize all the nuances of it, and it's just it's incredible, man. And you, yeah. your your craft, your like quality of your your 
your craftsmanship, um, it, it's really shows through in your work. And I was really happy to be able to talk to you. Cool. Well, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate it. It's, uh, you know, I, I definitely believe that we're all, we're all creative individuals. And, um, I just, I feel lucky enough to be able to express my creativity through, you know, not just the aesthetics of my bikes, but also the functionality of them, mm -hmm. because I think that's something you can be creative in too. So, yeah. And that, and yeah. that's cool that for your creativity to extend to functionality. And that's something that yeah. for me is, is very compelling. And I, and I hope in the future to find out a way to integrate that in my own life, you know, in my own way. Yeah. I mean, I think we're, I don't know, I'm definitely still working on it, you know? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Um, yeah. all right. Thank you, Eric. And if you, if you can, bud, uh, at your convenience, if you could just send me over a photo that you'd like me to use for like uh, a promo photo for the podcast, that'd be great. Yeah. Yeah. That sounds good. Um, like a picture of myself or a picture of the bikes or both or um, both would work, but really just, just whatever strikes your interest, man, whatever feels is most compelling to you. Okay. Yeah, no, that sounds great. Um, yeah. Thank you so much for your time and thanks for reaching out. It's been, it's been really awesome talking with you. Yeah. Oh, thanks. I really appreciate that, Eric. Yeah. Cool. Right. I hope you have a good day. Thanks. You too, Will. Yep. Thank you. Bye. Okay. Bye. Woo! Thank you guys for listening to this episode of the podcast. I was super excited to be able to talk with Eric. I love when people are able to take their desire to create and express themselves and make something that directly influences someone's life. And that's a bike and it's all him. He could get the frame and his own ideas come out on the other end. Fruits of his labor is that someone has a bike riding experience that has been directly influenced by the engineering and creativity of Eric. Wow. That's pretty cool. If you'd like to check out anything, uh, you know, Eric's custom builds, reach out to him for a custom build. You can go to mythcycles.com. You can also watch some b -b bike porn on Instagram at mythcycles. Um, yeah, he's just an awesome guy to be able to talk with. And I hope you guys enjoyed it as much as I did. Um, if you'd like to support the podcast, you can go to becomingahumanpodcast.com. You can drop a comment, share it with a friend. Um, you can go to find us on Instagram at becominghumanpodcast and follow us. Um, and you could even head over to your favorite podcast app and rate and review us. It's like a beauty pageant, except can't see me. You can only hear my voice. Mm, that might not be very beautiful. <laughs> All right. Well, I hope you guys are enjoying your week and the slow descent into winter or summer, depending on where you are in the world. I'm watching a beautiful storm push the branches of the trees around. And they go, they like click and clack and whirl. It's pretty cool to watch. Trees are so flexible and take so much force before they break. 
Not too strong, so they're brittle. Not too weak, so they just blow all the way over and touch the ground. I'd like to be like a tree one day. <laughs> Love you. Bye.